0: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, Rowena Christensen of Melbourne Medical School discusses the challenges of clinical medicine in space. And we have episode 53 of our Planet Earth series, in which we note the latest addition to the fleet of Earth observing satellites. And first up, we're going to have space show news. Yay, ring out the bells, because there, as a the record has just been broken, there are now 17 people in space orbiting our planet. The first time ever in human history that there have been 17 people in orbit around our planet. They include seven of the residents, normal residents, of the International Space Station. Uh, there are Russians... American citizens, and one from the United Arab Emirates. And there are four guests aboard the space station as well. That's um, two United States citizens and two Saudis. Yes, from Saudi Arabia, a man and a woman. And that's the first time in history that there have been three people from Arabia in space. The first time ever that's happened. One from UAE and two from Saudi Arabia. The Axiom-2 crew, the four of them are on the International Space Station, coming down soon. And that's a commercial mission. In addition to that, there are six Chinese people in space. Uh, three are aboard Tiangong. And I haven't checked recently but yesterday they launched another three into space and that brought the total from 14 in space up to that magic number 17 so 17 people in space for the first time in history now what about those chinese people well here is the crew announcement made just a few days ago
1: as evaluated and decided by the mission headquarters Shenzhou 16 manned spaceship is targeted to launch at 9:31 May 30th Beijing time. Crew members are astronauts Jing Haipeng, Zhu Yangzhu and Gui Haichao with Jing Haipeng as the mission commander. Astronaut Jing Haipeng has flown Shenzhou 7, 9 and 11 manned spaceflight missions. Zhu Yangzhu and Gui Haichao will this time have their first spaceflight.
0: Now, the first medical doctor to go into space was the Soviet Union's Boris Yegorov. In 1964, just three years after graduating with a medical degree, Boris was one of three cosmonauts aboard Voskhod 1. They made 16 orbits of the Earth in in a time of just a smidge over 24 hours. Well, 50 years ago this week, the first United States medical doctor to orbit the Earth was aboard the Skylab space station. Joe Kerwin was one of a small group of scientist astronauts. In a talk last week to the Space Association of Australia, Joe described that group.
2: uh, We started out with six, and one guy had to leave before we really got started. These are the first scientist astronauts. And uh, we have um, an Air Force pilot, a, uh, an engineer, a geologist, uh, an, a researcher, and a physician. The other physician uh, didn't make it uh, all the way.
0: A high-priority objective of the Skylab 2 mission were the biomedical experiments. One of Joe Kewin's crewmates was Pete Conrad. Now, Pete had flown two Gemini missions in Earth orbit and commanded the Apollo 12, which was the second lunar landing mission for humans. Now, Joe, in his talk to the Space Association, spoke highly of Pete Conrad.
3: So here's your, the prime crew, you and uh, your colleagues.
2: We got along just great uh Pete, Pete is a is a uh, a very uh, outgoing guy he's opinionated but is it but he's also willing to listen he was a very he were very good for the PJ and and me you just uh, convinced convinced him you were working hard and he let you do what you wanted to do pretty much and so Pete was great to have but the the other thing about Pete was that he uh, he would speak up at any level required to try and uh, and get something fixed, and in the mission in the first week of the mission, you know we had the the uh, uh, <clears throat> big solar panel locked down, and we were preparing, uh, the the backup crew was 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 preparing a uh, a scenario for us to do that. So we had we were very underpowered, uh, and we had this absolutely mandatory spacewalk coming up on day ten or twelve. Uh, and we had difficulties working the ergometer to stay in shape. It was a bicycle ergometer, and we one of the backup crews had, had designed a very elaborate shoulder harness to keep us firmly down on the seat. But that's not how you ride a bike. You don't ride a bike firmly down on the street. You get your behind up there, and you, and you, and you push it, you know? And we discovered up there that uh, uh, <clears throat> that is true, and that we could not, wearing that harness, get up to our maximum uh, uh, energy levels, work levels, because the straps cut through the thighs, cut off the circulation to your legs, and, and they just quit along the bottom. <laughs> so that was no good. And we were working on that. And the boys in mission control, and the, particularly the surgeons, you know, this was the, the big medical mission they'd all been waiting for, and and uh, they were nervous as heck about something going wrong. And Pete was working so hard trying to get up to speed that he was thrown an occasional premature contraction. No harm. Uh, it appeared, you know, infrequently and was not a sign of a heart problem, but they insisted that... Pete, that nobody was going to ride that bicycle unless it was over a stateside pass where they could look at every heartbeat. And Pete uh, couldn't go in the spacewalk. Well, Pete said, to me, the director, and Pete and Chris had a a, a a nice conversation. I was only asked to break in to assure Dr. Kraft that uh, Pete and the rest of us were in excellent physical condition. Uh, and uh, and he called the doctors off, and the doctors agreed to compromise that if Pete was able to do a run on the bicycle without a PVC, he could go on the uh, on, on the spacewalk. And at the same time, we found out the solution to the harness. The solution to the harness was to carefully wrap it up and replace it in the locker from whence it came. Ride that bike by just letting your body go forward till your CG was over the wheels and uh, and you could go as high as you wanted and uh, and uh, so he did one of those and he didn't have the PVC and we did the spacewalk and it worked
0: several apollo astronauts had been sick to the point of vomiting early in their missions naturally dr cohen was keen to investigate this phenomenon just on the screen there, uh, Joe,
3: I think there's a, a shot there of, uh, of you, that, that that spinning chair that you were talking about.
2: Silly rotating chair. Yes, this <laughs> is a 1G uh, uh, look, obviously. Uh, the way I'm bending over, you can just tell. And uh, Pete's got his uh, his uh, Minnie Mouse headgear on there uh, <clears throat> to, to close his eyes. And he's got a, we all had molds made of our teeth so that you could then attach your the mold to to the uh, uh that sidebar, and your head would be absolutely still for certain parts of the uh, of the vestibular experiment it had about four parts and uh, and uh, so uh, we're doing that but the uh, the 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 bad part of of the rotating chair was when you took that stuff off and you started nodding your head and rotating at a a speed guaranteed to that for you to not like it uh, you know, and, and again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the discovery on orbit was from the very first time, and we didn't, we delayed doing this uh, uh, testing until about day seven or day eight, depending on the crew member, to let you get totally over any DSMS that you might have had earlier in the flight. What is DSMS? Well, the doctors called it space adaptation syndrome because they were too polite to say space motion sickness. But we crew members called it dreaded space motion sickness. Or <laughs> I've got a shirt that says stamp out DSMS. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, uh, <clears throat> we didn't we, we didn't want to get close to that, and we found that in weightlessness, once you were adapted, you didn't get space motion sickness from rotating in the chair. And that was a glorious... Uh, uh, invention
0: or find out medical doctor and astronaut Joe Cohen speaking last week via video link from his home to the Space Association of Australia about his experience 50 years ago aboard the Skylab space station half a century later the medical aspects of human spaceflight is still a matter of investigation Rowena Christensen has not had the privilege of flying in space, but nonetheless has an interest in the challenges of clinical medicine in space. In 2019, she was introduced to the Moon Village Association at a meeting in the Deacon Edge Theatre at Federation Square by Mark Gerblum. Uh,
3: Dr Rowena Christensen is another member of the Space Life Science Committee, uh, she's a medical educator at the Melbourne Medical School. Uh, she also works as a pre-hospital emergency doctor and life support instructor. She's undertaken postgraduate training in emergency medicine, critical care, uh, women and children's health, aviation medicine, space studies and disaster health and emergency man- management. Rowena has interests in aerospace medicine, extreme environments and wilderness medicine. She's the chair of the Australian Ski Patrol Association Medical Advisory Committee, and sits on the Australian Resuscitation Council and the Board of Directors for the Mars Society Australia, and the World Association for Disaster and Emergency Management. Rowena is currently undertaking research related to expeditionary medicine and resuscitation science. Her career trajectory prior to entering medicine was as a lawyer and businesswoman, uh, and Uh, Rowena is going to give us an introduction into how we actually provide medical care in space and some of the challenges we need to overcome in order to support human spaceflight to the moon.
4: Great. So I am basically going to give you a whistle-stop tour through some of the challenges that we face when we're trying to perform clinical medicine in a space environment. I'm going to talk quickly about the planning that we need to do issues with communications and evacuation, telemedicine and robotic surgery, the equipment and pharmaceutical supplies that we might need, nutritional support, which you might not immediately think is something which is an obvious part of medicine, what type of doctor we want to take, and also just some of the special issues for surgery and anesthesia in microgravity or low-gravity environments. So human missions always require a great deal of planning and we we need to have the right people, the right equipment, and we also need to have levels of redundancy because once we're out there, we're going to be pretty well unsupported and we're going to need to manage things on our own. We also need to take the the right sort of people who are fit and healthy and not so likely to develop medical problems. If we're thinking about things like um, communication for telemedicine, there's not too much of a delay for the International Space Station or the Moon, but once we're getting out to Mars, there's potentially quite a long delay of between 8 and 24 minutes, depending on where Mars is in its orbit. And if we have someone who's very unwell, evacuation might be uh, quite reasonable from the International Space Station. But uh, even with Mars, we're looking at around three days, so we wouldn't want them to be too unstable if we're thinking about sending them back to Earth. And of course, uh, it's just not possible to evacuate somebody quickly from Mars. Telemedicine will certainly play a part. It's, uh, it's very useful for getting advice and potentially instructions. For instance, if you have someone with swelling on the brain and you want to drill a burr hole into the, the side of their temple to relieve the pressure, that's something that's been done via telemedicine here on Earth already but uh, there will be some dependencies. You'll need the right equipment, you'll need to have a stable electrical supply. The communication delay will be a factor and you'll also need good space weather so no solar flares that are going to get in the way. And it's going to need to be more of a backup strategy than something that we're going to rely upon. This is a a picture of a robotic surgery procedure. In the bottom left you can see the surgeon staring into a screen manipulating the instruments and then we have the patient on the table with the robot um, actually doing the surgery. There are two models, one where the operator and the robot and the patient are all in the same room and the other model where the um, patient Uh, is in one place and the person who's operating the controls is at a distance. And depending on the communications delay, that may be feasible for some types of surgery, but there would be the same dependencies as for telemedicine that I've just mentioned. NASA's also looking into the possibility of autonomous surgical robots But if you've ever seen the movie Prometheus, I'm not so sure about whether that's a good idea. And also, in reality, it's maybe a bit more likely that somebody will be trained up on the spot via video or additional instructions to be able to perform the procedure. We'll need to have laboratory tests. Blood tests are always going to be an important part of medicine, but they're going to need to be something we can take with us that's going to be stable. It's not going to deteriorate too quickly. And uh, we're probably not going to be able to have established laboratory facilities with um, high high level of specialised tests until colonisation is well established. We're also going to need some access to medical imagery because being able to see inside the body is a very important part of what what we do in terms of working out what's wrong with people. Ultrasound is already being used on the International Space Station and it's probably the most portable of our imaging modalities. And there are also small handheld versions which are currently being used by cardiologists. If we're thinking about X-ray machines or CT scanners or MRI scanners, they're fantastic pieces of equipment, but they're very, very large and heavy. And so there may well be practical constraints in terms of taking them uh, on a spacecraft and transporting them elsewhere. So that might be something that will need to come in the second wave of um, getting a colony established, for instance. We're going to need to take medicines with us to deal with common emergencies, and perhaps also uh, supportive things like vitamins and minerals. Once again, there'll be logistical issues. We're going to be stuck with what we can take with us. We're going to want it to be stable in transit, so shelf life uh, could be a problem and there's also a question of the risk of degradation due to cosmic radiation. You might ask why nutritional support is something I've highlighted as important, and that's because we need our astronauts to be as healthy as possible, and that's been highlighted by NASA as one of the the risks for human space exploration. In particular, we need to have a good strong immune system and good wound healing capabilities. And there's quite a lot of research to show that our immune system uh, works less well in extreme environments such as the space environment. Food security is always going to be an important issue. And there's certainly a lot of research into growing your own food, but at the moment, this is mainly around plant-based food. And if you have a purely vegan or vegetarian diet, you're not going to get all your nutritional needs from that diet, and so supplementation may be required. And it's also important to have a good gut microbiome to support our immune system. So you need a good balance on both prebiotic and probiotic foods. So um, fermented foods for the probiotics and fiber-rich foods for the prebiotics. In terms of the type of doctor that we want to take, we need to think about whether we want to take generalists like emergency doctors or GPs or specialists or a mixture of both. And the elephant in the room uh, relates to the fact that humans will be humans and the risk that somebody may fall pregnant and then how do you manage a pregnancy and childbirth in um, a microgravity or low gravity environment. And uh, gravity is also the elephant in the room for surgery and anesthesia. I couldn't find any papers on uh, surgery on the moon, so I'm just going to talk about a microgravity environment. But liquid containment is a real issue. If you have uh, venous blood, it will tend to pull where it's oozing out, which will get in the way of everything, and arterial blood will spurt into all those lovely little globules that you've probably seen floating around in science fiction Movies And bacteria will always be hanging around in the air, and um, you'll risk uh, both the wound um, getting contaminated or bacteria actually getting stuck in a cavity. Some possible solutions. NASA's looking at putting a fluid-filled dome on top of the patient and operating through that. And there's also research on using focused ultrasound to perform surgery. So both of those are quite interesting ideas. With anesthetics, there are also problems as well, because if we use vaporous anesthetics, they'll just hang around in the air and we might run the risk of anaesthetizing everyone. And also the changes in physiology could have an impact. So the lessons from pre-hospital medicine are probably going to be useful and perhaps more of an emphasis on just anaesthetising the part of the body that you're operating on, if that's a reasonable thing to do. So in conclusion, there are many challenges for clinical medicine. They're all interrelated. There'll be a lot of trial and error, but that's the way that we're going to learn, and success is going to come through teamwork, not um, just through the efforts of one person. Thank you.
0: Speaking at a meeting of the Moon Village Association at Federation Square here in Melbourne, that was Rowena Christensen, a medical educator at the Melbourne Medical School. This has been The Space Show. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. You're listening to The Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Now, if you'd like to know more about the Space Association of Australia, then we invite you to visit space.asn.au. That's space.asn.au on the internet. And you can find out more about us. Now, we have known... For quite a few years, that China intends to land humans on the moon. Now, remember Kennedy in 1961, he said they're going to land on the moon, the Americans that is, by the end of the decade. Well, there's an official announcement of a human lunar space flight by China in 2030. Here's that announcement...
1: Recently, the mission of human lunar exploration project in China has been launched and implemented. Following main objectives are set. By 2030, Chinese people will land on the moon for the first time, carry out lunar scientific research and related technical testing, breakthrough and master key technologies such as Earth-Moon-Human Round Trip, lunar surface short-term stay, Human robotic joint exploration. We will complete the multiple tasks of landing, orbiting, sampling, research, and return, and form an independent human lunar exploration capability. Promote the leapfrog development of human space technology from near Earth to deep space. Deepen human understanding of the origin and evolution of the Moon and the solar system. And contribute. Uh, Chinese wisdom to the development of lunar science.
0: This is planet Earth.
2: You're looking at planet Earth. Ba, 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 ba.
0: We're now continuing Season 4 of our Planet Earth series, the series in which we look at how space technology is helping us understand our home planet. This is Episode 53. Planet Earth is Blue. Well, last week... There was a launch, delayed by weather, but got away eventually, from New Zealand. Yes, from New Zealand. And uh, two American satellites were launched for NASA. And uh, we were there, well, (laughs) virtually. (laughs) And uh, here's how things went at Rocket Lab in New Zealand.
5: It's Friday, May 26th here at Rocket Lab Mission Control, as we await the liftoff of our 37th Electron launch, once again from Pad B at Launch Complex 1. Hello and welcome to Launch Day. You're joining us live for our broadcast of Coming to a Storm Near You, a dedicated launch for NASA to deploy the second half of the Tropics constellation. I'm Imogen Ray. And I'm Keegan Black, and we're excited to have you join us for another Tropics launch. It's also an extra special
6: day for us here at Rocket Lab as we celebrate the sixth anniversary of Electron's first launch.
5: We're targeting liftoff for 3.46pm New Zealand time. Today's launch is the second of two for NASA to deploy the TROPICS constellation, which stands for Time Resolved Observations of Precipitation Structure and Storm Intensity with a constellation of smallsats. This innovative constellation of four cubesats will monitor the formation and evolution of tropical cyclones, including hurricanes, and will provide rapidly updating observations of storm intensity. This data will help scientists better
6: understand the processes that affect these high impact storms ultimately leading to improved modelling and prediction to help save lives. We are so proud to be supporting Tropics and grateful to be
5: once again working with our mission partners at NASA. Just over two weeks ago on May 8th, Electron lifted off for the first of these two dedicated launches and successfully deployed two Tropics CubeSats to a 550 kilometer circular altitude above Earth at an inclination of about 30 degrees. All four of the Tropics CubeSats need to be launched to their operational orbits within a 60-day period period but the sooner the better which is why we're back on the pad just 18 days later ready to go to space again. Tropics has been
6: a massive team effort with the science team led by the Lincoln Laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and others including researchers from NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA and several universities and commercial partners. So with one launch down we're excited to get the next away today ahead of the North American hurricane season.
5: Just like our first tropics launch, today's mission is flying from Pad B at Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1, our private orbital spaceport on New Zealand's Mahia Peninsula. As we approach the final minutes in the countdown, our launch operators at Range Control in Mahia and here in Rocket Lab's Mission Control are working through their final checks before liftoff. Commanding this overall effort is Launch Director Julia Vembacher. Shortly, Julia will ask
6: all operators for an update on their launch status to determine if they are good to proceed with today's planned launch. This is called the Go-No-Go no go poll, where operators will indicate if their systems are green, go for launch, or red, which means they're working in issue.
4: The go sequence is now complete, we are T-11 minutes and 58 seconds in counting. We are go for terminal count at T-10 minutes. From this time the 3 way procedure is in effect.
6: Fantastic news there from Mission Control, all greens across the board, which is what we want to hear. We are go for launch, which means we are coming to a storm near you, very soon indeed. We are on track for a liftoff of 3.46pm New Zealand time today.
5: Today with this tropics launch, we're also celebrating a special anniversary for our favourite rocket. On May 25th, six years ago from Launch Complex 1, Electron took to the skies for the very first time. As it crossed the Kármán line and completed a perfect first stage burn, stage separation, second stage ignition and fairing separation, Electron became the first orbital class rocket successfully launched from a private launch site and opened up a new era in in regular and reliable launch for small satellites.
6: The flight also ticked a few other world firsts. The first launch for an all carbon composite rocket with the world's first 3D printed engines, powered by a completely new electric pump-fed cycle. 36 launches and 161 satellites deployed to space later, today we're ready to launch our latest pair of sats to space on Electron, and wish it a very happy 6th launch anniversary as it flies.
5: Today's launch will be our 37th Electron mission, but the way we go to space for the two tropics launches is a little different from a standard Electron mission to low Earth orbit. The launch follows a standard format for the, for the first six or so minutes of the mission. Electron will lift off from the pad thanks to the nine Rutherford engines on the rocket's first stage. These engines will burn for around two and a half minutes, lofting Electron to about 90 kilometres above Earth's surface. From here, Electron's first and second stages will separate, with the spent first stage falling back to Earth. Shortly after this, a single vacuum optimised Rutherford engine will ignite on Electron's second stage to propel the kick stage and Tropics CubeSats for another seven minutes, positioning them at that 550 kilometre altitude. This is where the mission departs from our standard format.
6: Typically, Electron's second stage takes the kick stages and payloads to an elliptical orbit, and we use the small 3D-printed Curie engine on the kick stage to circularize the orbit. For the Tropics launches, the second stage is used to circularize the orbit, and instead, the kick stage's Curie engine conducts what's called a plane change maneuver to position the Tropics CubeSats at an inclination of 30 degrees, the best spot for monitoring the formation of tropical storms. Here's more from guidance, navigation, and control team. Team Lead, George Buchanan.
7: I'm Dr George Buchanan, Guidance, Navigation and Control Engineer, Team Lead, but you can just call me George. The GNC team, Guidance, Navigation and Control, is in charge of making sure that electron gets to the right orbit. So the inclination of an orbit is the tilt. So a zero degree basically means that you're going all the way around the equator, 90 degree means that you're going up and over the North Pole and the South Pole. So with a normal electron, we'll go to a transfer orbit with our stage two. So that means that we're in around about the right orbit, but slightly, slightly too low. And then we use our kick stage just to boost us up before we deploy payloads. So for tropics, we've got to do a couple of sneaky things. So firstly, we do a dog leg, which is basically where our trajectory actually bends around. And so we head up north rather than heading out east, and then we sort of curve as we're flying. And then the second thing which we have to do is we use our kick stage to do an on-orbit inclination change which basically tilts the orbit which we're in to be in the right one. So for tropics between liftoff and payload deployment, most of it will look very similar. However, what's a little bit different for tropics is that we'll be at the right altitude already. You'll see that we're much higher than normal. So we go into a coast until we get close to the equator and at that point our kick stage will light its carry engine and do an inclination change. We'll actually be pointing sideways and burning sideways, so we'll be travelling up along this way and actually Actually thrusting at right angles to that which is which is highly unusual it is what you need to do to do this change. Shortly after that we'll do a payload deployment and so we'll actually be deploying outside of ground station range and so we won't have live confirmation of that until we get over our ground stations in Europe. Yes so we've done this maneuver before in fact we did it for the first tropics mission just a couple of weeks ago and um, we expect it to do exactly the same thing we'll head up north do a dog leg inclination change and deploy some more satellites into orbit. stage gives us is a lot more flexibility on orbit, and so we can do a lot of missions which a traditional large launch vehicle may not be able to do. So we can wait before doing burns. We can light up to, you know, dozens of times with this little kick stage, and we can point it in any direction we want to. It's also fairly flexible because it's, it's this photon bus. We can change it. So sometimes we'll add additional batteries so we get a longer mission, or we'll change the amount of RCS if we want to do a lot more manoeuvring and pointing. When a customer comes to us with some interesting requirements, then we sit down as a Team and work out how we can get Electron to meet these. And so this will be doing a bunch of simulations to make sure the trajectories will get us to the right orbit. We'll also run tests on actual hardware to make sure that we can meet any requirements that way. Um, sometimes we'll do things like change the design of the vehicle, so we'll be talking to other teams. And this is something which Electron being quite customizable and being really agile is great for. Yeah, I really love these science missions, being able to do something which you know is actually going to have a really positive impact on millions of people. It's um, something really special.
4: To everyone on mission code, we are go for auto sequence start at T minus two minutes.
1: LDs go for launch.
8: Vehicle is on internal power. FTS is green and ready for launch. Locks load is complete. System is in recirculation. Anti
2: geysering is disabled. 10,
4: nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one.
5: And that is a beautiful liftoff for Electron. The final two trophic satellites are on their way and coming to a storm near you.
0: And that launch was successful. The uh, two satellites were deployed into orbit, in the correct orbit, and then we had to wait and wait and wait because they didn't get a signal at first, and then they got a weak signal, and The last announcement that I saw, which was yesterday, was that they were still hoping to get a signal from the satellites. (laughs) I haven't looked today, so hopefully they've picked up the signal, but if not, well, that's the way it goes sometimes. You're listening to The Space Show, and hopefully next week we'll better tell you whether or not those satellites are in contact or not. 88.3
1: Southern FM.
0: Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. The four tropics satellites are each about the size of a loaf of bread. Uh, This size is called a CubeSat. Now, NASA is making significant investment and progress in demonstrating the technical and scientific capability of CubeSats. In the past, satellites used to monitor the Earth's environment had a mass ranging from hundreds of kilograms to several tons. The advent of microelectronics meant that these missions can be packed into a cube as small as 10 centimetres on each side. For example, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory's RAIN cube has been in orbit for three years. The goal of the mission was a three-month technology demonstration. It used precipitation profiling radar with two new technologies developed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. These were a miniaturized atmospheric radar and a deployable antenna. Throughout the mission, RainCube provided high-quality images of precipitating structures ranging from hurricanes to winter storms. In many cases, these storms were observed coincidentally with RainCube's sister CubeSat Tempest D. A Tempest D was a technology demonstration to enable multi frequency millimeter wave technologies on a low cost, short development schedule. RAINCube also completed the first ever in-space demonstration of techniques essential to enable a new generation of cloud and precipitation radars. This has already helped shape the vision for the next major NASA mission concept. The Aerosols, Clouds, Convection and Precipitation satellite will, as its name suggests, target clouds and precipitation a rain cube provides valuable insight for mission concepts under study by NASA and commercial ventures. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Globally, freshwater lakes and reservoirs hold 87% of our planet's liquid freshwater. Furthermore, one quarter of the world's population is living in a lake basin. So, when a team of scientists report that their res- report in the respected journal Science that more than half of the world's largest lakes and reservoirs are dwindling, we have to sit up and take notice. The scientists from the United States. France and Saudi Arabia used five satellites to look at the Earth's 1,972 largest lakes by surface area. The satellites were ISAT, ISAT ISAT-2, Landsat-5, 7 and 8 and Cryosat. The ISATs and Cryosats use a LIDAR, a LIDAR, L-I-D-A-R, to measure the elevation of water surface. The LIDAR shoots a pulse of light from a laser and measures how long it takes for a reflection to be received back at the satellite. Knowing the speed of light and the position of the satellite allows a calculation of the elevation of the reflective surface. The Landsats use photographs which are measured to calculate changes in lake surface area. The satellite data used in this study was collected between 1992 and 2020. The scientists found that 53% of lakes and reservoirs had a decline in water storage at a rate of about 22 gigatons per year. In all, 603 cubic kilometres of water was lost over the study period. Now, by way of comparison, Lake Hume holds 0.003 of a cubic kilometre of water when full, Uh, That's uh, 3 gigalitres. For natural lakes, the net loss is attributed to climate change and human water consumption. Warmer weather leads to increased evaporation. Some reservoirs are filling with sediment, reducing their storage capacity. The study included 18 reservoirs in Australia. In addition to the satellite data, gauge data from organisations such as the Bureau of Meteorology was used in the study. Now over in the United States, they have a Space Council, which is overseen by the Vice President, Kamala Harris. At last year's conference, they mentioned the Landsat Satellites, in a report from the United States Geological Service.
9: I'm pleased to be representing the Department of the Interior today. USGS took over the controls of the Landsat 9 satellite from from NASA last month, and we are looking forward to continuing that 50-year record of great Earth observation images. The new capabilities of Landsat 9 allow us to better track and understand the consequences of global climate change in order to help people on the ground operate their businesses and protect their citizens. Last week, during World Water Week in Stockholm, we heard from two farmers – one from Oregon and one from uh, California – who told us how they use Landsat 9 images to evaluate the crop use – the water use of their crops by verifying the evapotranspiration rates that they're seeing and allowing them to use less water especially important now during these drought times. We're also using Landsat 9 to document the historic 20-year drought that we have in the Colorado River Basin and to see the rapidly changing conditions in our river systems and glaciers, documenting the historic floods we're seeing around the globe and predicting future sea level rise. Landsat 9 images also allow us to detect water quality changes in things like harmful algal blooms that we see in lakes that affect our drinking water supplies. All of the Landsat data is available for free for anybody, whether you're a government agency, a business, a school, or a family, anywhere around the globe. Those images are used in commercial activities such as Google Earth and Planet. They are also used to help our research priorities for our STEM programs and mentoring opportunities such as the Ladies of Landsat. We are very excited about the announcement yesterday with our partners at Commerce on the – excuse me – on the CAMERA climate mapping tool, which is another great example of how we're using our new technology and working together for the benefit of the American people. Thank you very much for your leadership. Madam Vice President.
10: And for for folks who are listening right now, how would they have access to some of this information? Where should they go?
9: We have it widely available, both from NASA and the USGS, through our Landsat.gov programs. Never
10: without a website. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Uh, Don Graves is the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Commerce, and he uh, told the Vice President, about NOAA's activities on the
8: environment. I want to start, if I may, uh, by highlighting the work that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, at yes. uh, Commerce is leading on climate data. NOAA, is, as you know, is the nation's climate agency, working closely with our partners at NASA. Mm-hmm. And we're working hard to build a climate ready nation. So just this week, as Tanya mentioned, uh, in collaboration with the White House, with ESRI, and the Department of Interior, NOAA released the Climate Mapping for Resilience and Adaptation, or CAMERA, portal. The tool will help Americans assess their local exposure to climate-related hazards and identify potential funding that can help them protect people, property, and infrastructure. Space-based technologies, including remote sensing data produced by NOAA satellites, have dramatically enhanced scientific understanding of our changing natural environment. And as you've heard, Landsat and other satellite remote sensors measure surface skin temperature. Yeah. That's roads, rooftops, canopies, uh, and uh, forest canopies, whose temperature can be significantly hotter or cooler than the temperature that people in these places actually experience. So NOAA is adding to this data with on-the-ground measurements. It's our most innovative program, and we work with community-based groups and underserved communities to map the hottest parts of cities they can use that information to inform strategies to reduce the unhealthy and deadly effects of extreme heat. Mm -hmm. And I know you're you're wondering about how you can get that information. Absolutely. Uh, uh, More information (laughs) on extreme heat is available on NOAA's heat.gov website.
0: Bill uh, Brono is with the Department of Agriculture and she explained how the department uses space data.
10: Um, Deputy, uh, Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Jewel Brona uh, please talk about how the Department of Agriculture is helping farmers deal with increasingly what they are seeing in terms of floods and drought. Can you talk a little bit about how the Department of Agriculture and
11: your leadership is, is having an impact on that? We recognize that this administration has allowed us to focus on some really important things. Planet-wide food security, global agricultural practices, climate change and space, and you mentioned drought and and other disasters. Mm. Uh, We have really been able to focus on land-based conservation practices, um, and they will be directly dependent upon our ability to furnish and integrate space-based data layers into climate conservation practices using tools such as ESRI and Landsat data. We can utilize that data to address a myriad of issues, uh, including how our land is doing uh, to deal with disasters such as uh, drought and others, uh, agricultural production and other things. And it's really allowing us to focus on um, a lot of work that we're doing in climate-smart agriculture. So uh, we need our farmers and landowners to have solid data. And they need that data to make decisions. Um, It's going to help them. Have the capability of integrating space based data into their precision agriculture innovations. Mm -hmm. So we are very excited to be able to have resources Mm -hmm. from this council and the science that we need to deal with the challenges that our farmers face every day.
10: And you know, the um, astronauts that I spoke with this morning who are on the International Space Station, made a real point of emphasis on just that type of work and the importance of it, Um, including what I know that the Department of Agriculture is doing in terms of working with NASA to develop crops for long-duration space missions, which is very exciting as well. So thank you for that.
0: And those three clips, courtesy of the White House. Geodesy is the science of measuring the size and shape of the Earth. The use of satellites has a key role to play in this. There are two major goals of geodesy. One is monitoring the mass transfers within the Earth system with increased precision. The other goal is realisation of the reference frame. To this end, the French National Space Agency has proposed a single mission satellite called MARVEL. The name is an acronym for mass and reference variations for Earth's lookout. Scientific objectives would include measurements of geodesy, hydrology, cryosphere, oceanography, earthquakes and post-glacier rebound. All of these are seen to be highly relevant to society. And uh, that's been our Look at planet Earth today. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Now the space show has a home on the internet. It is space.southernfm.com.au. That's space.southernfm.com.au. And uh, there you can find more than 1,800, yes, 1,800 features for your listening enjoyment uh, and a few photographs. And once again, we invite you to visit space.southernfm.com.au. Up there included is the uh, the two Skylab specials we did last week and uh, two weeks before that. Uh, well worth a listen. And, uh, of course, many of the features are up there. We don't put up the whole program, though. So uh, just uh, go there and find out. Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie.